Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Rupert Radio. In this episode, I'm talking to Manesh Gurren, a PhD student at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He really is at the forefront of science when it comes to understanding these profound and sacred tools that we call psychedelics. In this interview, we get into his role with mentorship, how he went about starting a successful YouTube channel, and yeah, just a lot of the nuances and into the weeds of what it is to be involved with an emerging field that for so long has been surrounded with stigma. So yeah, without further ado, I hope you enjoy and let's dive in. Hello, Manesh, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, this is Manesh Gurn. He's a PhD student at McGill University studying the default n- mode network and how psychedelics affect the brain. In his free time, he's also uh, in charge of the Psychedelic Scientist, an uh, amazing blog on YouTube that tries to give digestible information about the real nitty-gritty science behind how psychedelics work. And yeah, I'm so st- stoked to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite. Well, today, I'm really excited to talk to you about a bunch of the things that you bring to this field as, um, I think, a younger voice and somebody who's trained in the actual scientific uh, understanding of a lot of these different functions. At the same time, I know that you have a infusion of Buddhism in your personal story. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to explore those elements as well. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I could start by describing what what that means exactly. So like for me, uh, I got interested in psychedelics through an interest in Eastern uh, mysticism and spirituality and meditation. And my first entry point was into that was um, this this, um, guy who worked at the high school that was that I guess he was a career counselor, a bit of an interesting character. And um, one time he he recommended to me a book on Zen Buddhism um, called... uh, uh, the Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow, which is kind of a, a classic in the Bo- Zen Buddhist kind of literature, you could say, Western literature. And um, I read this and I was totally enamored by the idea of, you know, meditating, like purifying our emotions and our mind, stilling our mind and attaining enlightenment like the Buddha. Um, and uh, I was just fascinated by this. And I was like, you know, nobody's really talking about this. Like this is, this is some, there's something to this. Um, and at the same time, um, I worked part-time at a restaurant and one of the guys there was really into occultism and esoteric, esoteric traditions and secret knowledge. And he got me listening to some stuff on that. Um, and then in tandem, these things just got me really interested in spirituality in general, um, in uh, just attaining different states of consciousness um, and of some kind of underlying reality, like that's not visible that we don't normally acknowledge is there kind of thing. So I was very fascinated in, the, in that by the, from the beginning, and I would read more and more on Buddhism, and it was, uh, I've been a daily meditator since I was maybe 18, um, so it's definitely been a big part of my journey. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, the, I just love the fact that you started to get interested in science and this whole domain through uh, your own version of spirituality. In my own journey, I've had so many people level the criticism at me that, um, yeah, that there's not enough spiritualness in science. And mm. I, I think that for a lot of people or in a lot of instances, that's just not true. And it's a confusion um, mm-hmm. 
the spirituality may look different from person to person. Uh, but I think for a lot of us who are interested in the nuts and bolts, that it really comes from this place of appreciating that there's something more going on. Yeah. I'm curious yeah. um, if you could just define a little bit what Zen Buddhism is, uh, specifically as somebody who's been practicing Buddhism for a number of years, and uh, it's just not been in the same tradition as Zen. And so I think I have like a working understanding, but it'd be helpful to hear from somebody who it seems is a bit more familiar with it. Right. So, so my understanding of Zen is just, it's kind of a more, you could say bare bones approach to spiritual development. It's kind of a more difficult approach in some sense. Um, in, in like the kind of traditional Zen setting, there's less explicit instruction. Um, it's like, there's lots so many stories of um, Zen masters telling people like, uh, you ask them how to meditate. They're like, forget about meditation. What's meditation? Go stare at a wall or something like this, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a very, um, it required a lot of figuring it out and not being told what to do or being told mm-hmm. why you're doing certain things, right? Um, and a lot of it is about transcending the rational mind, right? Which is the function of, for example, uh, a very po- one of the things that distinguishes Zen is their koans. Um, or cones, um, however you mm-hmm. want to pronounce that, and which are just little like um, riddles, which are meant to make no logical sense. Like, you know, uh, what did your face look like before your parents were born? Or, mm-hmm. you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping or something like yeah. this, <laughs> right? And and you'd be given that in these monasteries and like go meditate on that for five days and come back to me with what you get, right? <laughs> so Zen is kind of like a very, um, it's for serious practitioners and who are just like, going to climb this steep ascent um, directly without any kind of help and techniques and guidance. That's kind of mm-hmm. how I see Zen. So it's very pure in some sense and just like straight up meditation, um, transcend your rational mind and, you know, uh, aimed at attaining Satori or, you know, some kind of realization. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Satori is that? That's the word for, a, you could say, um, equivalent perhaps more often used is Samadhi. Um, so it's like, mm. you could say a state of unity perhaps a state of deep concentration. Mm-hmm. I see. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you, you mentioned that you've had a daily meditation practice going for a number of years and it sounds like um, there was little, if any explicit instruction or guidance on what uh, a useful or productive practice looked like. Um, yeah. So how did you, how, how did you get there? Right. So like, I remember reading the book on Zen and not being satisfied with what they describe meditation as. It's like, I need more details. Like I'm sitting here, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I remember I signed up for something called transcendental meditation, which you made it for, which is basically mantra based meditation, you know? And um, I paid the hefty fee you get for being trained in that, which I still don't understand that quite understand the, the rationale behind it, but I paid for it as a teenager with my money. I made being a dishwasher, <laughs> good yeah. use of that money. Um, so I used to practice that and um, that kind of get me more, you know, familiar with the state of what it's like to be, have your mind a bit more calm and be a bit more centered. Mm. And then um, as I went on, I kind of, got more familiar with the distinction between a focused concentration practice versus a, a mindfulness practice, which is like a more mm. of an open, inclusive awareness. Yeah. And then, so I used to try um, practicing that. So I would have sessions where it'd be like five, the first five, 10 minutes, uh, depending on how long it is, I would do breath, just follow each inhale and exhale. And then the last five, 10 minutes, I would just try to be as wa- uh, mm. aware of as many things as I can without focusing on a particular thing. 
And that's kind of what I've done. And I've also included so-called non-dual self-inquiry types of practice too uh, in more recent years. But, um, but yeah, so definitely my practice has evolved, but it's always been some kind of practice of stealing and focusing the mind. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's astonishing to me how many uh, variations or slight ways of modifying uh, meditation there mm-hmm. are. And when, yeah, whenever I, someone talks about uh, meditation, I, I'm always kind of like laughing to myself about how it's such a amorphous process. Totally. Um, I'm curious for you, what, what is the sort of like time frame that you're looking at? And I, I just want to be clear. I'm not somebody who thinks that like, oh, if you hit the 40 minute mark or the 20 minute mark, that's when like the real stuff happens. I'm just curious from my uh, own interest, like if you're doing it so consistently, is it a thing that you do in the morning for half an hour or yeah, what does it look like? So it's definitely evolved. I've had periods in my life where I was doing half an hour to an hour every morning. Um, But uh, these days I actually primarily do about 15 minutes of meditation. Well, definitely every morning. The morning is when I practice, Uh, sometimes at night, sometimes during the day. Um, I like to make meditation as a part of my life, right? Like if I want to break from research, I'll just sit down uh, and just do some conscious breathing and be present for a bit to recenter, right? And I like to do that throughout my day. So it's like not even a separate thing. Um, And and, and yeah, yeah. I was going to say, after like a couple of years of doing meditation, I I very much arrived at the same point. And Mm -hmm. it's been amazing, an amazing journey to find myself um, exhausted at like three in the morning, very high on acid or some, some combination of psychedelics. And then also working as a photographer for Shambhala. And mm-hmm. being like, okay, well, I am feeling a whole bunch of stress and I'm noticing that I'm trying to shunt it and shove it into the recesses of my mind. I think it would be really useful to actually like give this space. And so mm-hmm. going backstage behind the DJs where they're playing like world thumping bass and sitting in half Lotus for like, I don't even know how long, five minutes, 10 minutes. And just mm-hmm. having people like walking around me being like, who's this idiot backstage like with the camera yeah. meditating right. on the floor? It's like, <laughs> yo, this is going to be like really helpful. So totally. Gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, totally. It should be more normalized to just post up in Lotus Posture somewhere and meditate, right? Like <laughs> would not yeah, be opposed. Imagine walking on campus at universities and seeing people doing that instead of just like tearing their hair out and like screaming or crying totally that's the world i want to live in right (laughs) one day but um but yeah but um what i was gonna say is that nowadays my practice is more so i mix it with visualization practices and and yoga and uh movement type stuff so it's Mm -hmm. really i'm amorphous these days and i like to integrate different components so Mm -hmm. cool well i'd love to get back to that in a little bit because it seems like it's a thread that connects to another role of your life I know you're super passionate about, which is um, just self-development in general and um, mentorship. But Mm. before we get there, I have a question for you about um, your career path that you're on, that of being a psychedelic scientist, TM, and (laughs) just asking, um, yeah, sort of why is it that you've invested so deeply in this path? What is it about this um, field that excites you so much or like what is the promise you see in it totally like a lot of things so like to go back into this little autobiographical thing like when i was 
into meditation and Buddhism and all these things, I, I came across psychedelics in, in books I was reading. And I read this book um, in the first year of undergrad, I think it was. Um, it's uh, LSD, uh, Doorway to the Numinous by the LSD psychiatrist, Stanislav Grof. Um, and this book is just like uh, an amazing compendium of knowledge on, he, he conducted over 4,000 sessions with high dose LSD psychotherapy in Prague, um, mostly, um, I believe. And uh, him kind of detailing his own cartography of the different states you can go into and talking about all this stuff. And um, I realized that psychedelics had this huge potential to elicit this huge range of, of states of experiences, which one um, have huge overlap with these mystical states of enlightenment of oneness with the universe of transcendence. And also just like a whole variety of other crazy things that you wouldn't really think of otherwise um, in terms of, you know, uh, entering different basically visionary experiences and dreamlike experiences. And in that book, he's reporting people occupying the consciousness of other animals and lizards and all sorts of far out stuff. Right. Um, and, but then when you think, when I think about how I was told what psychedelics were, it's like they make you go crazy. They're like grouped in, in the same category as heroin or something, you know? Uh, and I had no appreciation of the nuance and the variety of experiences you can get into uh, and and especially not the positive states, which have this positive impact in align with spiritual states. Mm. And um, so I was like, these things are fascinating. Um, and then around that time, uh, I guess before that, I had my first experience, which also opened me up to um, having experience of life, but like watching it externally almost. I was able to see Manesh as this individual who has these personality traits, these thoughts, these behaviors, and he's functioning according to his own laws. And I was watching it, basically. So I had this experience. And it's like all things, things in tandem showed me how limited and myopic our usual conception of reality and who we are is and how it can be in so many other ways. Mm -hmm. um, and that psychedelics are a way of allowing us to, to shake off our blinders and um, you know, enter different states which provide access to new perspective and insights and all the rest. And so I was like, yeah, I want to study this. Like something is here. There's so much richness to this. There's so many mm -hmm. fields that intersect with this. You know, there is psychology, neuroscience, pharmacology, like ethnobotany, psychiatry, religious studies. All this stuff is related to anthropology. And I was like, I, I'm a person with a very broad interest too. I, liked, I, I was very resistant to specialized specialization at that time too. I was like, here's a way I can have one topic that unifies many things and lets me read and learn a variety of topics. Um, so then, so then I moved forward with psychedelics for that reason, mainly. Cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, hearing from you that psychedelics offered a, a path to studying some of the most exciting elements of what it is to be a human and on totally. this planet. And with a like degree of, uh, what would it be power or like excitement? Like it can go so deep in so many of the different fields in mm. a way that a lot of the traditional modes of engaging with reality just kind of like can't keep up with mm -hmm. totally totally yeah and I'm, I'm curious when you were you said you had your own experience what were some of the um takeaways you had from that first or following um periods of discovery like what was it like to have the blinders removed and that um uh, the external self observing yeah it's, it's really interesting like that first experience was really interesting because one of the things that i take away and again this is me interpreting it in retrospect i'm not sure if i would have explicitly viewed it that at that point 
Mm-hmm. Um, but something I felt was basically the, the like phylogenetic continuity between humans and between humans and other species. So I, I felt like you just, you just, you got to define that. I know what that okay, means. Okay. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically I felt how, um, how do I not be too abstract? If you think about the, the different variations and that our genes can express themselves, it's like, I have my own genes. My brother has kind of similar genes, but different genes. And then somebody, you know, very distant from me has very different genes. Right. But if you, if you look at, and then of course, chimpanzee and then a parrot and then a platypus, they have very different genes. Right. And if you, <laughs> so what I kind of experienced is how my genes and compared to the platypus or whatever, um, you could think of it as a continuous movement in variation that gets me there. It's very far, but like, it's connected in that we're different forms of life. We're different expressions of life. Mm-hmm. And um, the genes, um, how I think of it is this huge multidimensional space of possible variation. And we all occupy different parts of it, if that's not too yeah. abstract. And so it's like a continuous variation. Anyway, so I felt this connection to other animals. And I realized we're just animals acting out the, our own genetic heritage, which is as primates, we have our own tendencies. So when I had that first trip, it was at the beach and there were fireworks. It was like some fireworks thing. And people on the beach were hollering and like acting in all these kind of ways. <laughs> and I was like, we're just a bunch of apes on this beach screaming at lights in the sky. It's like, right. Yeah. And I kind of, I really felt that. And, um, and I felt more affinity towards other animals. They're just different expressions of life, which we are as well. And I think overall that experience led me to kind of, um, yeah, just feel more connected to, to nature and animals, I guess, and be less so caught up in thinking that we're special. And um, yeah. also seeing that a lot of what I do and behave and think is out of my control. It's like just happening and I'm witnessing it. And I kind of had that experience. Um, and that's a big you know, insight to have at like 17 or 18 years old um, yeah, to, to, to be connecting with that. And that's kind of what's motivated my meditation practice since then. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's the gist of that first experience, I guess beautiful it's neat i can see like already in that one um sort of anecdote how so much of the research is embodied just this uh like it seems like you were humbled in simple Mm -hmm. terms and just Mm -hmm. the the thing that so many people talk about which is realizing the connection between the i and the many like Mm -hmm. organisms and beings around us and yeah just something that's incredible incredible to me in this research and this field and and going back even before like western medicine got a hold of it is how enduring these effects are and Mm -hmm. how almost not everyone but certainly a very large percentage of people who have structured healthy engagements with these technologies come away with it with their own variation of these lessons and Mm -hmm. Yeah, for anyone who's listening who maybe hasn't experienced um, either psychedelics in a high dose or just ha- or has done them but hasn't had these takeaways, um, it's really something that for myself is almost ineffable, like really just difficult to p- put into words. Like words fail when you're trying to describe um, the f- sensation of truth and of like profundity as you realize like holy cow like all my quibbling all my worries are Mm -hmm. so inconsequential compared to this realization that like we are life and life is incredible and is painful is but 
this is so much more important. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I love that contrast of you being on a beach surrounded by monkeys throwing shit and looking at the sky. Cause yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's, that's what life is all the time. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. Yeah. I wonder and for, I, um, Oh yeah, go for it. No, you can go ahead. I wonder for, um, a lot of people who maybe are just learning about or just coming onto the wave of uh, psychedelic, psychedelics as like a legal um, and safe area of exploration, um, what you would say to them as a sort of pitch or an invitation to consider like really exploring it and really looking at it with like serious rational eyes? Right. I think uh, the first thing is trying to first get clear on, you know, what you're preconceived ideas are about them and what they can do. And because um, a lot of people, you know, we're in, it's instilled in us from a young age that they're dangerous, that they're X, Y, and Z. And so I think um, for people looking uh, who have some level of curiosity towards it is to look on the internet or there's a lot of good educational sources like the third wave or Psychonaut Wiki is a good one um, or even Arrowhead. And it's getting some like, you know, descriptions of, um, kind of the effects, like the actual effects that people are having on these drugs and what they can do, right? Now, this is not to mention like great books like Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, which is like, that's the first place you should go actually, which is a great compendium of, of both sociocultural and scientific uh, kind of knowledge on, on the topic. And um, I think at the same time, I, I'm always reluctant to kind of say anything too general because uh, they're not for everybody, right? People need to make sure, for example, there's not a history of mental illness in their family, that they're in a mentally stable place, that they're in a supportive context. And there's so many things that are caveats to having, um, to being able to have a good experience with these drugs, right? Um, A lot of things need to be taken into account. But I think, you know, um, I think psychedelics arouse fear in people and make people push them away because they're so radical. They're, They're kind of unpredictable in the sense that if you've never had a psychedelic experience, you don't know what exactly you're going to go through as much as you read about it, essentially, because the <laughs> phenomenological experience is going to be, you know, is much different than some conceptual knowledge you're getting from a book. And so I think um, if somebody, if I were to like try to make people more open-minded to it, I would just share the facts about the research that's being done in the preliminary clinical trials, showing that it's effective for different addictions, such as alcoholism, tobacco addiction, for depressed patients, for people who are, you know, um, have a terminal diagnosis or are going to die soon, can't come to terms with it, but psilocybin and LSD seem to be able to help them integrate their life, which is huge. Um, mm-hmm. And this is not just not to mention the positive effects in healthy people and allowing them to have these mystical experiences, which they rate as very uh, like significant and meaningful, um, and which, which result in positive changes in their well-being that lasts up to a year later, even after one experience. And so there's a lot of... Yeah, even longer. Like, like, like the, there's research that goes as far as five that right. shows like it actually gets increasingly more effective. Like people who within the first year showed little to no effect will actually three to five years later show strong effects of like, it, yeah, it working. Right. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of stuff out there showing that they're like at least worth a look, you know. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm more and more hesitant with like kind of just advocating for them more openly um, because they're not for everybody. A lot of people aren't reali- ready for that earth shadowing experience that their whole reality has been just one of many possible realities or whatever. <laughs> right. 
or, or that their 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 core beliefs which they've clung to since they were a kid are suddenly ripped apart and like crumble in front of their eyes like people are just not ready for that and that's okay right um so i think there's a lot of stuff to take into consideration for sure yeah and i mean just to clarify um i the thought behind my question wasn't as a recommendation to try psychedelics per se it was more mm-hmm. so um just for people who are interested perhaps in learning more about them and especially those who uh from just like a curiosity or like a scientific background want to figure out like what is going on here what are these things mm-hmm. um like you said they are really powerful amplifiers of what's going on for you and they have the potential to radically uh upset and destroy people's paradigms and so yeah definitely a huge amount of respect that comes with um mm-hmm. engaging with them or inviting them into your one's life even as a conceptual idea like without even trying them i think if somebody's going to like look at them and be like wait a second a lot of people who do this recognize profound things about who they are and what their goals are and all and their self-worth and stuff i think even just for there's i've certainly met people who when they hear that and they're like wait a minute like oh i'm not sure if i want to do that just like knowing that the technology can be yeah an invitation to consider and reflect on where they're at in their own life Mm, totally totally yeah and i i've i've come across people who who like hear about them they're like yeah it sounds fascinating it sounds like i've read about the positive experiences but i'm just not ready for it yet and that's fair that's a fair appraisal right it's like don't don't do it then do it when you're ready like um today yeah something totally that's a good point that you can recognize their potential um but like realize you're not ready to step to that yet you know um, or yeah, it just might sure. not be for you. Yeah. 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 I wonder uh, something I'm curious and I hope over the next uh, 10 years or so as psychedelics get legalized here in the West, um, I hope that there will be an evolving body of research that shows what percentage of the population um, willingly do engage with them when there's not like the threat of legal action, as well mm-hmm. as like what percentage of the uh, population gets significant benefit from them because right now it's really hard to tell there's just like not enough data totally and i think the point with these studies too is like there is a lot of like therapy going on there's a lot of preparation with the with the therapist rapport building um you know integration afterwards structuring and making sure everything is okay and then if people are just using it in a more casual way it's like it's not guaranteed that you know it's going to have those same um probability of having a good effect right there's so many yeah. um you would say extra pharmacological factors like outside of the drug itself that go into the picture For sure. mm-hmm. yeah and i mean something i'm interested in really is the psychedelic assisted therapy mm-hmm. um i heard rick doblin the founder of uh, maps once say that uh there's a difference between doing mdma at a rave versus MDMA and therapy. And there's a reason why you don't have everyone who comes out of a rave being cured of their uh, depression or their PTSD because it's not the same thing. (laughs) Totally, totally. Yeah, and this is kind of that idea where like psychedelics don't do the work for you, right? It's like psychedelics, um, they give you a window of opportunity to make these changes and to integrate your trauma and to, you know, experience your repressed emotions and to go to those dark places. But um, they're not going to like 
facilitate um, the changes in and of itself, right? It's going to show you where you need to go. Then you need to allow yourself to go there and you allow yourself to be present and feel it and then make a intention to integrate it afterwards, right? Mm. It's not a magic pill. So. For sure. They're, it's almost like they're the conditions that can help facilitate or like invite the change, but y- you ultimately have to be the one who makes the change yeah. possible. And yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curious, like this seems like a place where uh, the blend of, again, your, the spiritual elements of your life and the research you do at McGill uh, mm-hmm. come into play because it's, my understanding is that this is really a lot of what you're standing in or studying this notion of like the neurological um, implications of psychedelics. Yeah, totally. I mean, so like right now, like my research um, involves data that's collected by the research team at the Imperial College in London, led by Robin Carhart-Harris and others. Um, so I have their brain data of people on LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. And I'm kind of analyzing in different ways to look at similarities and differences between the drugs and how they affect brain function. Um, and this whole like area is so interesting right now, although it is very much in its infancy. I think a lot of people assume we know more than we do. We know very little. <laughs> and about um, everything <laughs> about, about everything yeah not just psychedelics literally about everything but uh but um with psychedelics like i'm very interested in i mean at the current point in time i'm just looking at like how can we understand um their effects on brain regions and how they interact in more nuanced ways and uh, i think a thing that's emerging in the psychedelic research literature right now is the fact mm-hmm. that when you look at some of these like at a more coarse level, if you look at the changes they do to the brain, it's very similar across LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and even salvia actually, which is interesting because salvia does not work on the serotonin system, whereas the other drugs do. So it's attacking a different receptor, um, but leading to these similar brain changes. And so then, so then the question that's arising more and more in research is like, are the, the way that we're characterizing brain function, um, is that a way that's kind of useful in differentiating drugs or is it just some like very, it's too coarse to even get there. Yeah. Right. And it looks like it is. So one of the things yeah. I'm interested in is trying to find out ways where we can actually say something, you know, uniquely, uniquely specific to each drug with the ultimate goal of trying to, trying to, um, you know, link these unique brain effects to their unique subjective effects. Cause they're not all the same, you know, especially like DMT and salvia are very different. Well, DMT is very different from salvia. Both those are very different than LSD and psilocybin, just in terms of the fact that LSD is like an experience that could be 10 hours, 10, 12, psilocybin, four to six DMT, maybe 15 minutes, salvia, salvia same like thing, five, <laughs> like five. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, how are these like affecting the brain in a similar way? It's because, they're not, but our measures are not sensitive to figure it out. And yeah. so something I'm interested in is in trying to find out the distinct, um, the distinct brain mechanisms that relate to different drugs. Um, but then also at the same time, what is the broad overarching principle in terms of what's happening? Um, mm. So I think these are, these are just like interesting questions I'm trying to look at uh, with the brain data. So is this fMRI data? Yes, yeah, so it's fMRI, yeah which for anyone listening as functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, looking at like blood flow and all that stuff in your brain. Um, yeah, I mean, so I went to Dalhousie, uh, which is a school in Halifax. And the reason I chose to go there for my psychology degree was because it had the highest per capita spending on um, neuroscience and like uh, doing the actual like 
research component. And one of the things that was really interesting was talking to a professor named Olaf Krugolson, who mm. got mad respect for. And he was just, he, uh, we, I remember we were in his office one time, and he was just lamenting how crude our measurement tools were and how, mm. I mean, it started with, we were talking about EEGs, like, um, which are just measuring electrical impulses on your scalp, uh, which is even a layer further away than fMRI. Um, but yeah, he was just talking about like the resolution that we get, the ability to temporally mark what's happening in real time versus uh, the readings we get and just all these different layers. And yeah, just going back to this notion of like how little we know, I'm really excited for whether it's through the advancement of hardware and new technologies that allow us to actually see into the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause like, something to note is that the brain most of the brain is actually underneath the exterior like the surface level that we see is just like i don't know what the percentage would be but it's most of the brain is folded inside and Mm. so like it's really hard to disseminate um what's going on where in that like 3d space and there's so like when a couple millimeters in any direction mean completely different brain areas um yeah yeah, there there are so many challenges to it, totally. And like the concern is, for example, with fMRI, it's like how much are we studying the brain versus how much we're, are we under, studying the, the fMRI signal, you know? The brain, it's like how much of the brain fMRI signal is actually the brain and not something that's related to um, our veins in our brain, like our vasculature or yeah. various other things, right? It's like, it's very, it's, it's, it's very messy. And, and like a lot of, Neuroscientists joke like um, that as soon as a new hardware or a technology comes out, it's like the whole field will start over basically. And now it's going to be uh, the neuroscience of X, Y, Z, whatever thing, right? And it could be that. Although there is, this is where it's important to benchmark some of these stuff. Like, for example, um, to, if we want to get more into it, like the neuroscience field is moving more towards merging across distinct measures, right? So like fMRI measures kind of changes in brain activation through blood flow changes, let's say, through oxygen in blood. Whereas EEG, you mentioned, is more direct in that it measures electrical activity, except it's like on the outside of the scalp and it's like less um, precise, like where it's coming from. Um, And then you get studies of people who have lesions where they have actual brain damage in a specific area and you can see what kind of deficits, right, come from that. And so a lot more studies are moving towards including all three of these are more modalities in order to really, you know, get more reliability in what we're finding. Because if the EEG is saying it, if the electrical activity and the blood flow changes line up, it's much more strong than each one individually, right? Um, or if they both line up with, you know, somebody who was damaged there had that deficit, that gives you more reliability than it's actually in the brain um, yeah. and not some you know, artifact of the way it's being analyzed. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, so there's a lot... Yeah, so there's a lot of messiness in neuroscience, especially brain imaging research um, that's not often acknowledged in the media. And um, even more the case with psychedelics because we're dealing with very small groups of people in these studies, like 15 people. Um, mm-hmm. When most neuroscience studies have minimum of 30, but mostly in the hundreds these days. Um, so, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious how, um, given the, Im- the limitations of the science in today's day and age, I'm curious how your um, mystical enculturation, your 
uh, I'm not sure if you'd still identify as, or if you ever identified as a Zen Buddhist, but um, that that realm of thinking, how does it affect your scientific uh, thinking today? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I actually don't personally identify as a Zen Buddhist. I'm more, I don't know if I identify, what do I identify as? I'm much more aligned with just, I guess I don't align with any particular sect. I'm more so just my, my own tradition is just like being in awareness and being still. And um, I guess more of a non-dual tradition type thing of um, my philosophy is just trying to allow myself to um, be less caught up in my mental models, but more present with the experience, moment to moment experience of reality and the infinite potential that brings, not allowing my past memory and et cetera to condition and guide myself um, in a kind of undue way, more so being open in each moment as it comes. Um, so I really like the teachings of Osho these days. I'm really into, into Osho's teachings. Um, and also I do resonate with people like Sadhguru and all sorts of teachers. Uh, Ram Das is one of my favorite teachers as well. So I, I pick from all places. But So these days, like how it relates to the science is that I see myself like I see science is becoming more and more, you know, um, uh, acquainted or closer to studying these things. Right? There's a lot of research on meditation these days, on mystical experiences, how they work in the brain, what their effects are on people, what it's like to undergo these experiences, like subjectively. And so, this is really these are all hot topics in research world. Um, and you know, if you look at the trends in their publications, they're all like went up. And so. Um, I'm really interested in merging the two. And I think there are more and more connections being made. And, um, and I don't think studying them scientifically demystifies them or like, you know, says like, Oh, like you think you're having a oneness with a world experience. It's just like <laughs> some chemicals in your brain. You oh, know, man. I think that's bullshit because they're, they're two independent, completely independent modes of, you know, describing something, yeah. you, you know, you can't reduce one to the other. And, and so I, I think, um, I'm interested in emerging the two just to get more, just so that they're more acknowledged in mainstream society. And for all those like people who are very, I guess, hard headed, who won't acknowledge the potential unless there's empirical evidence, even though, you know, there's lots of other kinds of evidence. Um, I think it's good. It's important to get that empirical evidence to see for those types of people and to find out, you know, the exact bounds at which they're effective and the caveats and to get more precise with it. Right. Mm-hmm. of how these experiences can help people or not and etc um so i think that's really interesting um at the same time uh at the same time i i, I sometimes separate them where science i put my science hat on and then in real life i'm just kind of more contemplative meditation oriented aware person right where mm-hmm. science is just sometimes it's a uh, kind of a game I'm playing, I guess. It's like a hat I put on because I see the validity of it in our culture and, um, and of just like getting more clear on these things. But, um, but I, I don't think, and I, I don't see them, in some sense, I don't see them as separate, but in, experientially, I do kind of just live a life, you know, in that way, whereas it doesn't directly reflect in the way science is done because science is, it doesn't, yeah, it's different from that. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing from that is like kind of this uh, underlying uh, just idea that like when we talk about science, I think that you or I, somebody, uh, people who have gone through like, uh, in this case, Canadian universities in the 21st century, um, have this notion of science being this like scientific model that's 
based on peer-reviewed journals and all these elements of rigor and stuff. But a huge learning in my life was just like realizing that through these different, um, even say Eastern traditions, uh, like Buddhism, like uh, Hinduism, or I mean, you can go across the board, um, there really is a science there. And it may not be the kind of science that I was raised to think is like the best version, but like scientific method, I think it's only like a hundred years old. Like before that, it was like a lot more um, general and I might be off the dates a little bit, but when we look at like Buddhist texts, we can see that like, there's a very structured method of personal introspection and discovering like what arises and then like recording observations or making note and then like comparing that to future instances and like sharing those with your peers and then being Mm -hmm. like what happens for you and yeah i just i think it's funny when we think about for myself when i think about science as being this domain that's only exists for like the modern western person instead Mm -hmm. recognizing like First Nations cultures here in North America have been doing science and like land stewardship for since time immemorial. And right. yeah, there's many different forms of it. So yeah, I hope that people like you and people around the world are continuing to find balance be- behind the way they want to live and the organic beauty of being a human and as well as the mechani- uh, machinations or like the tools that help us do research or study reality. Yeah. No, totally. It all comes down to, yeah, like the definition of science, right? I, I think, yeah, you're right. Like a lot of people these days equate it with this particular academic model that's like in the mainstream universities these days, or I guess across universities. Uh, but there is a more generalized definition of it of just like intersubjectively validated information or like, you know, kind of like that. And then, then like yoga would count as that. Yeah, Buddhist, you know, even the Vedantic teachings I go before that um, or whatever is uh, the science of inner experience, right, in some sense. Uh, yeah, and I find that, find, find that stuff fascinating, right? But yeah, it, it's a different mode of inquiry because it's totally based on, it's not based on objectification and quantification in the same way that science, that we assume science needs to be these days. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it is, it's a diversity of, of definitions and viewpoints, right? But yeah. I, th- I think it's wonderful in the Western tradition to even just look at the history of how science, things like physics or psychology or all these different things, um, historically, they come out of philosophy. Like mm-hmm. the first scientists were philosophers. And so, yeah, there really has been this evolution of um, the means by which these things are investigated and it will continue to evolve. And hopefully we get more precise and we get also a bit more accepting and a bit more like cognizant of the fact that there are alternative explanations to things out there that Mm -hmm. um, we may not already know. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And I think, yeah, the more I I learn and read about stuff in science and in general, I guess we were talking before, the more I realize like, we don't really know. We, we take these fundamental assumptions to be the case, but there is uh, more like, you know, there's more scientific theories and, and hypotheses. And the more you start doing research, at least for myself and realizing who the people are at the top who are creating these things, these are, these are just normal people as well. Like, you know, realizing Mortals. that they're just normal people who came up with these ideas 
and they're not some like hard coded like fact <laughs> of reality, right? <laughs> which totally. people assume they they are, you know, which is natural to assume. And I think this is an interesting linkage that I think uh, you can link it to almost conspiracy theories. And, and I'll tell you how because like um, implicit in a lot of conspiracy theories is that. There was somebody out there who knows everything that is going on and is controlling it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the desire to believe in that emerges from a desire to think that there is somebody out there who is, knows what's going on and has that ability to control it. Because I think yeah. that the, the thought that we're just out to lunch, not knowing what the hell is going on, and even at the top, they're just as lost as we are. Like, that's scary, right? Yeah, totally. And, and and I think in science, too, we assume the people at the top know and they, they're certain and, you know, but they're just as uncertain as anybody else. Um, and the person who created the theory is often as big as skeptic, too. So, I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's I'm, really interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up because, yeah, I definitely see that all the time. And through my years of uh, meditation and mindfulness, I catch myself now when I'm, like, wanting to do that or wanting to believe that. And mm-hmm. I'm able to sort of like detect and unravel a bit the underlying fear or concerns I have of like, well, if it's not that way, if there's not someone who I can put the responsibility on, or if there's not a lever that can be pulled that has this clean uh, effect, well, then I might be in danger. And then yeah. just noticing, ah, and I really don't want to be in danger. Mm. Ah, okay. <laughs> and yeah, yeah I, think, I think it's amazing how prevalent this desire for like responsibility and even if it's yeah something going bad and you just want to be able to like blame somebody and have a scapegoat i I haven't published it yet but i actually um i did another episode of the podcast that should come out soon um that was with somebody who i'm going to say i don't see eye to eye on or i don't see eye to eye with on uh covid and the conversation really was an attempt to explore their uh, both of our point of views in a nuanced and like mutually respectful way. Mm-hmm. And this was this topic of like really wanting there to be a uh, uh, wizard behind the curtain. Um, right. Definitely came up. Totally. Totally. No, it's interesting. I think it's just a part of the human desire for certainty and order and meaning. Right. Because uh, if there's no hidden, there's no dude behind the curtain controlling it, or no group, you know, of reptilians or whatever it is you want to <laughs> believe in, <laughs> um, then it's like it, it it creates a certain greater degree of chaos in the world because totally. it's not being controlled by anybody, right? So, but there's I think living so chaos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think this is also why these days people are much more likely to jump into it because you know everything is a bit crazy, so you'll latch onto some more extreme thing for that certainty that it gives. Yeah, for sure. And my heart goes out to all of us who have that desire and who uh, can notice stress and then be like, damn, like, I don't know how to deal with this. I'm going to try and find ways of reducing the stress. I think I know only speaking for myself, that's something I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can definitely see see the temptation. Totally. So I think one of the most important skills and meditation helps with this. And this is kind of why I resonate with Osho's teachings because he talks about a lot is just like the ability to sit in unpredictability with comfort and the the ability to realize that, you know, maybe we just don't know what the hell is going to happen in each moment and being okay Mm -hmm. with that because you, you're kind of in this place of acceptance and flow and trust in yourself, you know, 
to deal with things as they happen um, without having ha- without needing to think you can project into the future like this and this will happen then this and this and this and I'll react like this you know it's like letting go of all that and being okay to be in that place sure. um, and Osho describes this really great analogy I just want to share which because it hit me it resonated with me he's like I guess he's describing his approach to life or something like that um, and his philosophy for life and he's like imagine you're in a plane and um you're like skydiving you're jumping out of this plane right and then so you jump out and then you're falling in free fall out of this plane and you realize you forgot the parachute right mm-hmm. and so you're in a free fall and then you look down and you realize there's no land beneath you so like you're in perpetual free fall with no breaks and he's like that's how you should live your life in terms of just being open to each moment and just gliding through it um without clinging on to anything because you can't and it's allowing yourself to go with that dynamic complexity and unpredictability. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway. yeah, I, I actually I heard that quote for the first time recently as well. I think it's originally from um, Chungna Rinpoche. It's either Chungna oh. Rinpoche or Tuknat Han, but some of the first yeah. uh, people to bring Buddhism to the West. And yeah, just the notion of like the the way I heard it was. Um, it just simplified in me paraphrasing is this idea yeah of the terrifying truth is that we're always in a constant state of free fall yeah the beautiful thing is that there's nothing to hold on to yeah and just totally. recognizing and yeah i think when i when i heard this was through naval ravenkot are you familiar with him no if you if you're into osho and um all these different people. Naval Ravikant is a uh, more contemporary, and I think just younger, and also like entrepreneurial. Um, he's a serial investor and uh, writer, he, and he really channels them and is an incredibly um, multifaceted individual in like the depth of what he explores. So yeah, definitely recommend checking out him. That sounds he awesome. He also encapsulated Osho's notion of um uncertainty by saying that he who can be comfortable maybe this is exactly what you said already i'm just parroting you but yeah, uh, yeah. he can who can be or they who can be uncomfortable and un, or take two they who can be comfortable in uncertainty will be comfortable in everything right and right just just knowing how as a practice if you can do that and yeah again echoing you holy mm-hmm. cow it is useful to meditate and to like see this and to be like wow i'm really uncomfortable i'm sitting here right now and i have like i d- just want to move and i just want to like i can't be here and being like oh and if i'm willing to just sit here it's like actually not that bad i thought i would like explode or something but no it's actually pretty chill <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's like the same experience of overcoming a fear. Fear. Let's say you have this deep, uh, really strong fear of. I used to have this. I kind of still have this. It's like a fear of swimming in open water, uh, mm. where there's anything that can be below me, right? And I have this fear towards that. And um, I think the feeling you get when you just jump into that water and start swimming uh, with that fear coming up and like move past that fear. The feel, uh, the feeling of liberation and of power, and and that you feel after in that aftermath, I think is is like the place that you can get to in any uncertain situation is allowing yourself to sit with it long enough for that negative experience to subside, and then you're just in it, and you're like, okay, this is it, and um, 
there's a stability and equipoise that can be reached, I think, and that's like the place to be in. Um, is mm. to try to be in that place. Mm-hmm. Well, that's beautiful, and yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I, I hope that for you and for anyone who's listening, that they're able to find uh, the or choose the path of meeting that resistance and like allowing it to to be without having to like flee from it. So kudos mm-hmm. for jumping into the deep water, Manash. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's not easy, but yeah. <laughs> totally. I, I guess there are there are practices we can do to cultivate that in our own life. And psychedelics mm-hmm. are definitely one of them along with meditation. But yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot. Just even waking up early in the morning and um making yourself do that or going for a run. And yeah, yeah I'm curious. Um just before we jump into this, I wanted to share, are, are you familiar with um, the unbearable lightness of being? Ooh. I've heard of it, but not, I'm not familiar now. So I don't know what the best way of framing it to introduce it to the audience is and yourself, because I first engaged with it when I was in my teens, and I've since gone back and reread it a couple times. It's actually one of the only novels that I've reread. Um, I'd say it's one of my favorite novels, um, but at the same time, I recognize there's some, let's say, problematic elements, specifically around sexuality and like it's how it portrays men versus women. The male characters are in these positions of like control a lot of the time, and the female characters are often like following or submissive, um, which, yeah, is just maybe not the most egalitarian, egalitarian presentation. But uh, I think there are some real like underlying and truths that are baked into the story as well as just beautiful writing and Mm. it's a novel it's not super long um but as the title suggests one of the main takeaways of the whole book is this notion that uh it is unbearable to exist as we are Mm. like the unbearable lightness of being and the whole theory, and it took me a while to like digest this, but the theory I took from it was this idea that when we die, if you are somebody who doesn't subscribe to there being a heaven or hell in a literal sense where your like, sins are measured or whatever, and then you get assigned a place in some mm-hmm. future, I don't know, future instance, mm-hmm. um, if you think that like when you die, either you're, th- th- this experience ends completely then the author, Milan Kundera, his conjecture is that, like, well, then most of what you do here won't matter when you die. Mm-hmm. Right. It will matter maybe for other people who are your descendants or other members of this planet. But for you, it's kind of like the slate gets wiped clean. Mm-hmm. And so if that's true, like, what you're doing now has very little stakes because I don't know if this is in the book, but I've heard this quote, like, when I awake from this dream, the world will end. Mm. So right. when, when, you, when you die, it's just like game over, everything stops. So in the waking life, why not do everything that you think is meaningful and those things that are maybe really scary, things like diving into the open water. But like, if you don't do them, it won't matter. If you do the, do them, it won't matter. So like, why don't you do the thing that really feels important and like valuable to you? Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally, man. I, I, 
I totally agree. And I actually, I'm not sure if you know this. I guess you do. I do have a life coaching thing where I help people with these types of things. Uh, mm-hmm. I do find it very important to, to help, um, to live a life where you feel connected to these things, right? Because a lot of people settle for less because that's kind of the, the inertia of their life has taken them there or they fall in some, following some standard social narrative of how they're supposed to be. And they downplay um, their authentic, you know, uh, values and priorities and what they really like, right? Uh, but then as mm-hmm. you're saying, it's like, like, why live that life? Like, for who are you living that? You know, it's like <laughs> you have this life and you're going to be miserable because some imposed culture, cultural narrative, um, yeah. which, you know, yeah. So I definitely, I definitely resonate with that. <clears throat> for sure. Yeah. I mean, as trite as it sounds or cliche, like we really do only have this one life. At least that's all I can sit, be confident on. And mm-hmm. so for anyone who's in a place of, making decisions like yeah why not seize upon the idea that like you can do literally whatever you want and do so with integrity and with conviction and passion and pain and just try to try to be real instead of this gray uh sponge or shadow of a person Mm -hmm. totally totally i wonder um yeah if you wanted to speak a little bit more about uh the life coaching and mentorship in general. I know that you've been involved with um, men's groups uh, Mm. for a long time. And yeah, what has mentorship looked like in your life? Yeah, totally. It's a good question. So um, my first kind of like movement into this space was through a men's community based in Vancouver um, called the Samurai Brotherhood. And basically it's a community. Yeah. It's kind of, some people have an aversion to the name, but it's, it's a great community. (laughs) And, um, uh, basically, now it's expanded to like over 400 men of all ages, from literally from 21 to 70s, and meeting in distinct groups of 15 men uh, across PC, basically. And it's a way for men of all ages to connect with each other, support each other, um, provide a place to kind of share what's going on in their lives, their insecurities, their fears, their relationship struggles, their career struggles, um, their wins, the things they're going through, and having a place to share that um, and be challenged, supported, held accountable. And this thing was amazing. I was a part of it for two years um, while I was in Vancouver. And um, I think having that platform to be able to be, have yourself reflected back to you from a place mm-hmm. of, of love, but also like fiery love. It's like, like, hey, you have so much more potential. I know you're not showing up the way you could be. It's like, why is that? Like, you know, and putting a fire under your ass to change. And, um, and this has led me to see the value of these kinds of contexts. And I, I've kind of, naturally slotted into these kind of mentorship relationships with a few people in my life. And, um, and uh, I've seen the value of it. And when I moved to Montreal, I started my own group as part of this community. And it's like me and 10 guys who meet every week um, along the same organization. And it's been extremely um, provided a lot of value to me to play that role and get support. Uh, And also I've seen it provide a lot of value in helping other people. And so more recently, I decided that I wanted to do formalize this in a one-on-one way or my own coaching way. And so I've started a life coaching business where I coach people basically to um, kind of gain more greater control of their life in terms of breaking out of habits and impulsive behaviors and limiting beliefs and this kind of patterns that they fall into overall and connect with their passion and purpose and what they're truly motivated in and to live a life where they feel connected. They feel authentically aligned and connected and excited each day. And they're doing that in a way um, that allows them to live off it in some sense. So um, Mm -hmm. 
And so that's something I'm very passionate about. And I, I really see the value in these kind of coaching or mentoring relationships and, um, you know, really shifting somebody out of their, their rut and their stagnant patterns. Because a lot of people, I think, especially with COVID, are realizing, you know, having more time for introspection um, and reflecting and reflecting how often it's like life might not be, you might know you're underachieving, you might know you're dissatisfied, but the inertia of life is so strong that you're just going to keep doing it anyway. And that's most people. Um, and so I think having an external source to push you out of that and keep you accountable is huge. Yeah, mm. totally. Yeah, I, I heard the, like, some great memes during the early days of COVID. And one of them was uh, an image of the earth pointing. Uh, and it was just the caption was like, uh, the earth is sending us all to our rooms to consider what we've done. Totally. And yeah, just this period of introspection definitely is, I think, encouraging or inviting people to look at especially because like a lot of people are staying in their house more it's like who are you with who are you living with you have all the stuff you've accumulated does it make you happy and then also like you're by yourself now with less distractions like what's coming up internally as an individual Mm -hmm. um so yeah definitely some silver linings there yeah no totally i read this thing it said um isolation means uh, amplification and i think that was Mm -hmm. a good line um, because it does, it, you can't, you know, um, run away from what's going on internally through compulsive experience seeking and relationships, right? Externalizing, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and this is why I think, again, psychedelics are valuable. Meditation is so valuable. And these, all these kind of practices, which can allow us get in contact with our depths in a way that, um, you know, is, um, fruitful and is helpful and manageable, mm-hmm. um, it's not easy to go there sometimes, but for example, a meditation practice, we were able to become less identified with our thoughts and emotions. Then when those difficult thoughts and emotions come up, we're more able to stand back from them and manage them rather than being overwhelmed, right? Um, so I think, you know, all these things go hand in hand. And that's why I think moving forward in this next decade, decade as we're in the, you know, economic and mental aftermath of this whole thing, that things like this are going to be so important, right? Yeah. Sounds mm-hmm. like almost as if a prayer. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I'm curious more about the mentorship and specifically if there's any um, structures or attitudes or tools that you've stumbled upon through this process that uh, really help facilitate um, the presence and uh, education that you get in those spaces. Yeah, I think for me, it's like the main, I think, I think the number, okay, we can say two points. There's two points. So the first is that um, in order to make lasting change in your life, um, you can't just make external changes. You can't just force yourself to be in a different routine, force yourself to like live somewhere else. You have to do the inner work, right? You have to mm-hmm. go inside and see like, what do I truly believe about myself? What is possible? What patterns am I falling into and why? What's motivating them? Is it anxiety? Is it fear? What am I running from? Who am I trying to live my life for? So I think the most important thing on any self-development journey is going inside and getting clear on yourself. Mm. Um, And this can often be facilitated interpersonally. So when you have other people who you can be very vulnerable and honest with, who want the best for you and will tell you what you need to hear and reflect that back to you, right? I think that's, that's the one critical thing I've learned through that. And the other one is, 
real change only happens through action. It's like you can read all the books, you can do all the seminars, you can tell all your friends about how you resonated with this book you read, um, but that's not going to change your behavior, right? You got to go and do stuff that you haven't done before. You have to do stuff that's not consistent with your patterns, to do stuff that you're scared to do, anxious to do, fearful to do, uncertain about. Um, mm-hmm. That's exactly the things you need to do in order to break out. Um, mm-hmm. So those two things, definitely. Yeah. Struck by the quote, um, the only way to find brave new continents is to lose sight of the shores that you know so well. Oh, uh, yeah. Totally. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As it comes to um, finding the people that you can be vulnerable and trust, and also, I would um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine in there is also this notion of like they have the skill to recognize. Uh, who you are and what you're doing as well as identify the things that would help you um, yeah, improve yeah. and be better. I'm curious what, um, how you find those people. Do you have a framework or how do you go mm. about cultivating those like meaningful relationships? Right. Hmm. Yeah. I think for me, um, I've met a lot of people in that men's community I mentioned and in the broader community. And in this context, the different groups of 15 men or so, or so like two of them are, you could say, are, are leaders who have either, either been trained by the person who created the whole thing itself or have been in it long enough within the context of other leaders so they've learned the skill set, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in that whole community, there's lots of people like this. And there's also a women portion of it as well. There's like a lot of women who are connected to that men's community um, and have their own women, uh, like sisterhood. Um, and, uh, and I think apart from that, um, Honestly, it's just going to events and uh, opening up conversations with people like, you know, um, like meditation related events, yoga events, things that were people of a similar wavelength, people who are interested in doing their work on themselves, um, maybe go and um, and starting up conversations. And obviously you would not start up uh, being vulnerable, but I think going to places where people are more likely or not to be coming from a genuine place and experimenting. Mm. Uh, or or finding an already constructed community, like I mentioned, and I'm sure there's many out there, um, yeah. and um, entering into that. That's the best advice I can give. But people are out there like that who are looking for these relationships. And mm. I think, um, I guess the number one thing to do is go to communities that are already constructed around this and and meet people through that. Yeah, and I just want to put a little plug out as well as somebody who just started this podcast and speaking to you, somebody who has your own um, public channel, that there's also this new emerging way of finding community, which is learning in public and by publishing your thoughts or your being like a, an accountable figure who has a platform because people can find you that way. And it's a bit of a slow approach. It's not going to get you um, the connections to people with maybe the uh, that you want to meet right away, but it, it is an avenue to help um, cultivate the kinds of conversations you want to be a part of just by literally doing them out loud. That's such a good point. Yeah. Like these days and age, like anybody can easily, you know, put together an Instagram blog of where their mind's at and what they find important. And yeah. that is a really good way to get a profile of somebody, you know? Mm-hmm. So like a lot of people maybe will view Instagram in a derogatory way because it's like, edited images and authentic but it can also be used as a platform where you genuinely share yourself and give the world a sense of who you are right 
Um, yeah. And this is how I use it. And I'm sure you use it as well. Right. So yeah, that's a great For idea. Sure. I, uh, in high school, I was, my group of friends was literally just born out of, for the most part, the people who were convenient to be around and they lived close to me and they had some similar interests, but especially as high school went on, um, integrate like 11 or 12 close to the end. I really realized that I didn't have a lot in common with them and that I was kind of shoehorning myself in. And a lot of that realization came from overt pain and jagged edges of the ways that I interfaced with the other members of the group and Mm -hmm. ways in which they picked on or were really not considerate or supportive of me as a person. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to recognize quite abruptly like wow like i really want to have friends that i admire and feel safe around and i don't feel like i have that so Mm -hmm. i kind of reinvented my friend group in the later years of high school found some good people and then graduated and then there was a period of years as i was going through university where like i one of the major reasons i went to university was to find more people like me more people Mm -hmm. who i felt a connection to and to some extent, I found those people, but um, definitely more than high school, but not to the same degree that I was kind of hoping for. Mm-hmm. And what was odd around that same time is um, I started, like you said, an Instagram account. And I just started posting the things that I was writing in my notebooks um, on Instagram and pairing it with pictures. And yeah, over the course of like three years, it became like almost like a job. Um, it blew up. I mean, I say blew up, but it got a couple thousand uh, followers. And it was one of the first times where I was like, holy cow, there are people spread out around the planet who really do want to have the same kinds of conversations that I'm interested in conversations about art and philosophy and the meaning Mm -hmm. of life and how to be a better person. And I just remember it was like having a glass of water when you're like uh, dehydrated or like, being like oh man okay cool there are those communities out there totally and then, totally man yeah after um the instagram thing in vancouver i discovered the vancouver collective housing network are you mm. familiar with that no actually it's a series of like um a series of houses that are different than just like people renting in that a collective is defined as people living like cohabitating in a space with a shared vision. Mm. So it may be as simple as like they um, are a bunch of people who live together, but they're like, they know what the house is about and they have like a set idea. It's different than people just like renting a room and whatever it goes. Um, And so I'm sure our ancestors have been doing this for a long long time. Um, Mm. But in Vancouver in current day, uh, there's a network that's established on Facebook of a bunch of these houses with varying degrees of structure or um, professionalism, I'll say. And some of them are like intergenerational homes where you have like elders as well as like babies. And then there's some that are skewed towards like travelers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to, it's like almost like visiting temples or like monasteries in the sense that when you go to each one, they all have different flavors and different um groups that occupy them um but they're all kind of speaking the same language about like connection and like um living in harmony and that was i i I grew up in vancouver 
spent my whole life there and was introduced to the Vancouver Collective Housing Network when I was like, I think I was like 24, 25. And mm. it was the first time where I was like, oh my God, in Vancouver, there are people like this. Because I right. went to university in Halifax and then right. Instagram right. was all over the world. And it was like, wow, okay. These groups exist everywhere or more or less i'm starting to realize it's just a matter of finding them so yeah i really appreciate mm-hmm. your advice totally totally yeah and that vein too just like psychedelic communities are sprouting up everywhere too like every city has one these days um you know i know there's a couple or at least one main one uh, there's one at ubc in vancouver um which actually i co-founded back in the day and, and there are other ones too like um even in montreal there's one and all around the world so people who are interested in psychedelics there's more often than not, wherever you are in the world, you can, there is a group that's already there um, meeting. And if not, make mm-hmm. one. Because again, you know, just like you were describing, there's like-minded people out there. They're just not coming together yet. And if you're somebody who has that vision, you could just bring them and be that person. You know, it takes one person to build that. And, have, and I think a lot of people will be surprised by the amount of people they get um, who are interested, right? Totally. To that end, there was a guy in Vancouver who rented a hall or like a, a venue and he literally just started putting posters around for like a psychedelic uh social night and mm-hmm. on the night of i think there was like 300 400 people who showed up and That's... it was incredible like it wasn't there was no advertising there was no like governing body or anything it was literally just like hey are you interested in this stuff and then nice. throughout the night there was a bunch of like presentations and yeah it was super wholesome That's amazing yeah i love that kind of stuff for sure Yeah yeah Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, uh, yeah, this, the notion of mentorship is, and connection is, I think one of the things that more and more people are waking up to is being an essential ingredient or nutrient that has been depraved or like limited through this like capitalist industrial society that we're a part of. And so building on this advice I'm hearing from you about how to find them, I'm curious, um, yeah, I just really want to like hone in on how do you know whether or not you have that or not? Because I know for myself, there was um, definitely been times in my life where I'm like, just grateful for any kind of social interaction or friendship. And I think for some of us, it can be really hard to dis- distinguish between like, what maybe an optimal relationship is or a, a limiting one or one that has limits. Mm, yeah, it's a good question. I think it comes down to, I mean... Yeah, like for me, I'll, I'll talk for my speak for myself. Like for me, it's like the question is when I'm with this person, one, do I feel comfortable authentically expressing myself, or do I feel like that's going to be met with, in an odd way, or do I feel constrained, right? Mm-hmm. And the, another thing is, do I feel uplifted and energized after spending time with them, or do I feel worse? And do I feel like it was a draining interaction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one is just like, I think you have to trust your intuitive judgment a lot of time. I think for me, it's like, if it's a very different, this feels the interaction. If, if it's somebody I resonate with and who I know is coming from a genuine place versus someone who it's not quite there. Like you, if you're attentive and you, you're somebody who trusts those signals when you get them, um, mm. I think that's an important part. Um, then you can recognize that pretty well. Um, I think it's part of it is, is like being able to trust your intuitive judgments because our intuition is like kind of in that context as a representation of our social knowledge, which is a lot of unconscious knowledge we've probably developed, which is we've been fine-tuned to be social animals, right? So I think allowing yourself to trust those can often, more often than not, lead you in the right direction as well. 
Sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. I'm curious, um, continuing the advice train though, uh, what advice you'd have for somebody, say uh, somebody who's in their early 20s or maybe even their late teens who's looking at uh, psychedelic science and something they want to get into, um, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, totally. Um, I think one is uh, to get clear on, hmm, one is to know your stuff. So do the reading, you know, read the books that you want um, that are relevant. Read Michael Pollan's book, read any other book that appeals to you. Um, and if, if you're at that stage, like start reading some of the research articles. They're not too crazy a lot of the time they're not super dense and technical um but maybe i'm wrong that's just from my perspective at this point even but if, even if you just read the abstract and the conclusions and start to familiarize yourself with like the structure uh mm -hmm. i think that's can be really helpful totally and know that reading those kind of articles is a muscle nobody jumps in easily being able to do it it's like you get better at it over time totally and yeah so like know your stuff and um importantly don't um uh, underestimate your ability to reach out to people and, and contact them. You know, I think we, we have a tendency to pedestalize and put on the pedestal people who are well-known in research, you know? Um, but they're just normal people like anyone else. They might be hard to contact because they get a lot of emails, but there's not a 0% chance you can just like write up an email and contact them and get a response, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think what's so important as an upcoming researcher is your network. And so, um, really trying to make yourself known to these people in any way, whether it's through an email, whether it's through Twitter, whether it's just like emailing them, asking about something in their research study that you thought was interesting or that they missed or they didn't do. Just basic stuff like that is a great way um, to start getting mm -hmm. yourself in there. And then two, it's like try to find out, um, get more clear on what you'd want your specialization to be. Psychedelics, as we've mentioned, is this huge, broad area that intersects many different things. Even within a given field, there's so many different ways to focus on it. So I think having some sense of what you would want your specific niche to be um, is really important because that kind of really compresses the number of things you, you would want to uh, try, try or try to contact or try to do. And so to get clear on that is important. And, um, and also, if you're in the research context too, just like... Um, try to get as much research um, experience as, as soon as possible, especially if you're an undergrad. If you're a second-year undergrad student, there's no reason why you can't try to join a research lab at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, know that when you're looking at labs, what they care about are your skills. So find out what specific skills are needed for a given research position and focus mm -hmm. on those. Um, and, and yeah, and be persistent. Like if you email once, they don't respond, email five more times, you know, obviously over a period of time, not at once, but, uh, yeah. but be persistent. If it's persistence pays off for sure. Maybe uh, find out when they have their uh, lab meetings and show up that day with a box of donuts or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's anything. Honestly. Yeah. If that is feasible to do, that's a great idea. Man. I heard um, of somebody uh, who delivered their resume to like a tech company by um they couldn't get it past the secretary or whatever so they yeah. dressed up as uh, a local donut store employee and brought in a box and put it on the ceo's desk and when he opened it it was a box of donuts with the resume uh printed on the inside of the box <laughs> that's epic so, and you know so good. 
they got I hired. Think, so right, right, because like yeah, like CEOs, lab heads, whatever, they love that stuff, right? Like and um, they're people. They they're literally people. They're not machines. So like. Yeah. Finding ways to connect with them on that human di- dimension is super important, which maybe mm-hmm. can lead to the next question. I'm curious, um, how did you get your start in research? Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, in my second year of university, I was at Simon Fraser University this, you know, of undergrad. This is before I went to UBC. I transferred there in third year. Um, I started the SFU Psychedelic Society. So I started the student club. At that time, I was like, you know, there's no club that really, you know, is pulling me. So I like psychedelics. I'm going to create a club around that. So I did that and it, it, it grew pretty well. And one time there was a MAPS event. So Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, a MAPS event in um, like downtown Vancouver. So I was like to some people in my club, let's go, let's go together. And so we went there and there were a number of speakers, including Rick Doblin and others um, at the time. I think this cool. was, this was like 2013. 13, I want to say. Uh, yeah, probably 2013. And um, yeah, so we attended this event. And at the end of it, me and my friend went up to Rick because uh, he was just standing there. We're like, this is a great opportunity. We could talk <laughs> to this guy. Um, and we go up to him. We're like, hey, like we're both undergraduate students. We're part of the psychedelic club at SFU. We really want to get intro- involved in research. Is there any way you can help us? So we went up to him and said that. And he's like, oh, you know what? There's a researcher at UBC who might do an fMRI study of our MDMA patients for PTSD. And then we're like, yeah, like, is there any way we can be involved in that? Whatever. He's like, you know what? I'll, I'll, send, her, I'll send her an email, I guess, in the professor wow. and, and let her know that there are two interested volunteers. And so basically, and he, he actually did it. Like he was, this, we're just two random kids coming up to him at the end of an event. He probably has so much stuff on his head. And he took the time to email uh, Dr. Kalina Kristoff, who's a researcher at UBC, um, about us. And ultimately, uh, we didn't end up doing that MDMA project, but we both became research assistants in that lab uh, because wow. of that. So Rick set us up. And um, the thing is that lab was very competitive, people emailing all the time and nobody's getting in. But like since Kalina saw, since we came to her desk directly through Rick, who's like a well-known guy, she's like, yeah, mm-hmm. like I'll link you to my PhD students and you can interact with them. And I ended up publishing a, a paper on psychedelics with Kalina like a year, year or two later. So like she got, I ended up getting her on the psychedelic train and, um, and that whole, <clears throat> so Rick set me up with that research position, which got me into a lab and she was doing mind wandering, daydreaming, meditation research, how those things work in the brain. And she's a very open-minded, like great professor who I ended up working with for like, uh, four years probably before grad school. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then through that, through her, um, I got, I was able to publish, a, be on a couple of papers in undergrad, um, publish this psychedelic one, um, et cetera. And with her, I also had the idea of analyzing some brain data that was collected in London. So Robin Carr Harris and his team had collected data with psilocybin and, uh, and LSD at that point. This was like 2016, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was like to clean up my supervisor, um, I was like, oh, like, it'd be really cool if we tested some of the hypotheses from our work on their data. And she's like, yeah, just like, if you can write up a proposal, we'll send it. So I wrote a proposal and we sent it to Robin and he responded saying it's a great idea. And we ended up getting the data. And I published that paper with Robin and Kleena uh, earlier this year. Um, And so literally it started with Rick, you know, just happening to help us uh, get this position. And then me taking the initiative to bring these psychedelic ideas to that new researcher 
and propose this idea of emailing Robin and them. Um, and then now, if you fast forward right now, like I have a good relationship with Robin and those other guys and collaborating on a couple of papers um, and probably will ro- work with Robin after I'm done my PhD for my postdoc. And it's basically opened me up to work with one of the top psychedelic neuroscientists in the world and like, yeah. you know, and have that opportunity uh, just through taking initiative and talking to people. I would have never have met Rick if I didn't make my psychedelic club because I would never mm-hmm. have gotten to that experience. So it's all part of the journey, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess the moral of this story is, you know, never underestimate or what, you know, stepping into something related to psychedelics in your life can bring you. It might just seem like some <laughs> random, random little club that you're making with your friends, but like who knows what connections down the line that can lead to, right? And, yeah. and take initiative, email people. Totally. What I get from this is just the value and the practical um, takeaways of like doing the work to jump into the open waters and recognize that like it may not be super clear immediately why that's of benefit, but it can have downstream massive payoffs. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, the strategy that I also use in my life that I love of like trying to put yourself in positions that increase your surface area to opportunities. And I'm familiar Mm -hmm. with um, psychological evidence or like studies that show that uh, this concept of luck is really just an attitude and this um, continued persistence of orienting to the possibility that there could be really wonderful things happening Mm -hmm. and not just being like, oh, well, like, I'm satisfied with my lot in life. Like this is basically as it like, yeah, no, I think your story really clearly demonstrates that um, if you continue to put yourself in these novel positions and continue to like ask and inquire and show like earnest enthusiasm that that can open some really magical doors. Totally. Totally. I think the important thing is like, yeah, recognizing that you can never like, you can never be certain about what an action will bring you. You will never, you can never be certain of what, what effect an experience will have on you. You mm-hmm. might think like, Oh, I'll do this and this will happen. You know, it won't be anything exciting, <laughs> but like you never know, you never know at all. Right. So yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's probably better to do a little bit uh, than to do nothing at all. Cause like you said, that little bit could turn into something huge. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm curious about uh, if you could just describe Robin Carhart Harris a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, Robin is great. He's very, uh, like, soft-spoken, like, uh, very easy to talk to, well-meaning guy, as far as I've, from my interactions with him. Um, he uh, was always very, you know, when, in terms of me reaching out to do uh, analysis on his data, on their data, very open to sharing it, very, like, kind in the way, and, and just trying to be helpful for, for us to, to look at it. And... Um, these days, you know, he'll send me a random email with a, with a paper. Where he's like, oh, this paper is relevant to this idea we discussed. And then we'll bounce ideas back and forth. And it's very casual. He's like a very easygoing guy. I think the main thing these days is like he's pulled in every single direction. You know, he's like this kind of psychedelic celebrity in the research world. He's mm-hmm. on the board for like half a dozen uh, companies. And he's like doing so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he genuinely, he was telling me a story about how um, you know, he's so busy with his schedule. He has a secretary to manage his schedule and all this kind of stuff. And um, he got this really heartfelt email from this woman about, I think, her daughter or something, saying that her daughter w- would want any, like, really, really would love to meet him and chat with him over, over Zoom. 
Mm-hmm. And then so Robin was like, oh, I get like a lot of these emails and like, I really feel bad turning them down. But this time he's like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. And he ended up going on a call for a couple hours or whatever with this random person out of his heart just to talk with her. And, um, and I know from my interactions with him, he would love to do it uh, more often. He just kind of doesn't have the space. Yeah. And he's also really into Buddhism, you know, uh, as far as I could tell. He's a big fan of Jack Cornfield, for example. Um, mm. And he, he likes that wavelength a lot. And so, yeah, that's my experience of him so far. Right on. Mm-hmm. I'm curious um, if of his like body of work as a psychedelic celebrity and as one of the preeminent uh, researchers in this domain, if you had to steer somebody towards his work as an introduction, uh, is there anything that you really uh, get inspired by? Yeah, something I enjoy about Robin is his, you know, ability. Um, this is his hmm, ability to like bring together a lot of research into theoretical kind of models or frameworks. Mm-hmm. Um, so something I like a lot is um, like he gets a kind of he kind of gets slack sometimes from other psychedelic researchers by being too theory based and sometimes getting a bit more distant from the data than they would like, I guess. Mm. But I enjoy it because you need that to for innovation. And, um, you know, as long as you I think there's a lot of value in t- to it, even though you're not going to take it at face value, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so I like his models on he has his relaxed beliefs under psychedelics models model, which is this overarching um, unitive model of how psychedelics affect the brain and the mind, which I can talk about if you want me to. And he also had another really cool paper working with somebody else talking about this concept talking about how the serotonin two-way receptor, which is the receptor that psychedelics hit mainly, um, how it can mediate access to what he calls pivotal mental states, which are basically play states which kind of f- can facilitate personal transformation, basically. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think in both these papers, he's linking a huge body of work together to make these arguments. Um, and I just like the sheer you know, depth and breadth of his um, how much reading he's done on the literature on these things and his ability to synthesize into intuitive, mm-hmm. um, you know, theories. Seems like he's taking a lot of the human elements and the like practical implications and combining it with the hard data and the science, which is, yeah, something you expressed a lot of uh, desire for earlier. Yeah, totally. I think that's, yeah, it's definitely important. And there are psychedelic labs out there which are less that and more, hard science kind of approach which is good which is valid and important and it's important for a grounding and supporting as a critique of some of robin's stuff to keep him from going too far astray i guess um Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) and uh uh and so i think it's a great like in the if you look in the the field of psychedelic neuroscientists there are people who are more in robin's camp who are more have are more open to exploring these theoretical ideas Whereas the other ones who are like very, very more nitpicky and grounded and concrete. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think Robin is great for creating these grand models and spurring innovation. And these people are like good in keeping us stay stuck, stuck to the facts and what actually we know. Right. And I find myself in as being more in the middle. It's like, I, I work with Robin. I, I enjoy his ideas, but I also, you know, really resonate with the other people and, and I feel like Robin has his master's in psychoanalysis, for example. So he comes from a psychoanalysis background into neuroscience psychology, whereas I'm more like 
I'll characterize, characterize myself as more of a neuroscientist than Robin. Robin mm-hmm. is more of a psychedelic researcher. I'm a neuroscientist. This is why mm-hmm. he likes me because I'm the neuroscientist grounding for his work and I have the technical skills. And so um, I think, yeah, so I think what I try to do is I strike a balance between being true to the brain and neuroscience and the science, but also being open to these subjective, um, uh, the subjective side of the story and the more, more of the theoretical stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I think in the interest of time, I'm going to start uh, moving us towards wrapping it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the psychedelic scientist and this uh, podcast or uh, YouTube channel that you mm-hmm. started. And yeah, did you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Totally. Um, so this channel emerged, I guess, back in June this year. Basically, I mean, I'm known a lot of my friends and family in those circles as a psychedelic guy and still am <laughs> even more, even more so today. But back, uh, back then I was, but a lot of people didn't really know. Yeah. Didn't know why or what psychedelics even are and why they're important. And like, they're just like, Oh, Manesh, he's into those weird drugs. Right. That's kind of the <laughs> kind of how I was described by a lot of like, especially family. <laughs> but, um, so I went that'll, to the way that will be your bio, by the way, in the introduction to this podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the guy inter- in- interested in those weird drugs, basically. <laughs> um, and I wanted a way to like um, showcase my knowledge and put it in one place. So if like, if I come up, if I interact with anybody in my life, I can see like, oh, just check out my channel. You learn about what I'm interested in if you're, if you're curious. And then, um, and also I just wanted to fill the, the gap of, sure, there are YouTube channels revolving psychedelics out there, mostly by people doing trip reports or, you know, or just like um, kind of speculating or going off their own wild theories about consciousness and psychedelics. But there's nobody actively involved in research saying these things in a popular science way, in a digestible way, right? And so I was like, I love to articulate this stuff. I love to talk about it. Um, this seems like a perfect place for me to jump in. And so um, for those two reasons, I started it back in June. And, um, and it's been a great journey. Like it's gotten me a lot of opportunities. I was hired by a mental health company called MindLeap Health. They basically have an app that um, connects people with specialists in psychedelic integration. So integrating psychedelic experiences mm-hmm. through an app, through a smartphone app. And they wanted me to create educational content for them. And, you know, and so I'm doing that for them. They pay me well. And this is like a great opportunity I got for making this channel. And it's also connected me with so many other people, um, including like uh, with you, with other podcasts, like perhaps it, would be it's much more likely that i'm going to be getting these opportunities to speak since i have this kind of um portfolio basically of Mm -hmm. who i am and whatever like you know and my view on things and so on and um and so yeah so and and i really enjoy the sharing cutting through the bullshit that's out there with these news articles and sensationalist news reporting and saying what research actually tells us and the caveats and the limitations um and uh providing an entry point for people who can't just go uh read the scientific articles and who want that digestible format right yeah um, so yeah yeah for a little plug for anyone listening uh manesh's episode on uh the default mode network and how that's implicated in psychedelic experiences given that you're somewhat of an expert in that field it was really interesting to hear how you're informed perspective differed from what maybe the populist uh narratives are uh a lot of people are representing the default mode network as like the be all end all and um 
it was nice to have a more measured and nuanced take of it. So yeah, I just encourage people to check that out and to check out the whole channel. It's pretty cool. Um, uh, getting in the nitty gritty, I'm curious, like, how did you come up with uh, the name, the psychedelic scientist? Right. So there's this really popular um, Instagram page called the holistic psychologist, <laughs> great content on there. And, and um, I, I guess I saw that at some point in time and I was thinking, what's a way, you know, there was two ways I can approach my title. I could just be Manesh, like just my name and, or I can make it more of an impersonal thing as a brand in some sense. Right. Mm-hmm. So I went back and forth on that a lot. And I was like, how can I um, describe psychedelic science in a way that's clear that we know what it's about, um, but that it refers to me. So then I guess the blending of those, those two things in that, that other page, I was like, oh, just like a dog scientist. It sounds like a cool word. So yeah, cool phrase. Totally. It's, it's a great name. It has that like more um, esoteric element of psychedelics, but then the grounding of the scientists, which, yeah, it sounds like that duality or that balance is something that I've heard represented in a lot of your, um, your life and decision making. Yeah, yeah, totally. Full disclosure, um, as I was trying to come up with a name for this podcast, uh, I was inspired almost to call it the psychedelic therapist. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, largely in, as a nod to what you're doing. <laughs> right, um, right. And yeah, just also to who, anyone who's considering starting a project like this, um, you could get lucky and strike a name like Humans of New York or something that instantly has a sense of like gravitas and um, importance for anyone listening. But the chances are, I'd say, like less than five percent of doing that. And I'd say, for the better part, in my experience, you're way better off focusing on developing the content, testing your assumptions, and build like actually putting work into the thing. Um, yeah. And I, part of me saying this is that I hesitated and I slept on starting this project for months uh, as I tried to figure out these things, like what the name would be. And at the end of the day, like. Mm-hmm the name is not what's going to make it a success or a failure. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, man. And like the journey of content creation is the journey of overcoming perfectionism. Right. Yeah, I'm sure exactly. that, that's what it is. It's like me too. Like at the beginning I would struggle re- recording my videos, even though I knew what I wanted to say, I had to articulate, articulate it in this specific way for it to optimally, you know, hit my audience in the way I wanted to hit it. And it just stressed me the hell out. And like, um, you have to let go of being perfect with the name, with the logo, with the exact <laughs> way you're presenting it, all this stuff, and just do it. That's really what you got to do. Did you hear that, everybody? Don't stress about your logo. Don't stress about your branding colors. These things matter way less than you probably think they do. Exactly. 100%. Um, well, I wanted, I wanted to give you a little props because uh, your channel definitely, and the way you speak is uh, very erudite. It's very um, educated mm-hmm. and informed. Mm-hmm. And the pairing of that with, uh, I think, a youth and a vigor and a passion is mm-hmm. a rare commodity in today's world. And so I really appreciate that you're out there and that you're putting yourself in these positions to be one of the many faces that are starting to disseminate and distribute this information mm-hmm. about these incredible technologies that are available for our species. Um, thanks mm-hmm. for doing that totally. work. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going back to the perfectionism. I'm curious, like the way you articulate these ideas about um, the different research material is very um, clear. And mm. is that something that are you freestyling? Are you doing it off the top of your head or are you writing them down and then reading a script? How do you go about that? Right. Like for me, it's mostly um, 
I'll do bullet points and uh, memorize, the, I guess, the order of the bullet points and then just freestyle based off of them. So I, I, at the beginning, I was trying to write a script and read off of it, and I just can't do that. That's not my, how, how my mind works. <laughs> my mind is like, um, once I get into a flow, just the words just come naturally, and I'm able to describe it. Whereas mm-hmm. if I try to let go of my intuitive improvisational mind and go into a rehearsed reading mind, it, just, it messes me up. I can't do that. Yeah, yeah super yeah. stiff. <laughs> totally um yeah and then what else are you using uh to make your podcast like do you mind going into your equipment setup a little bit right um uh, i keep saying podcast but it's a youtube channel i'm thinking yeah <laughs> although i am going to incorporate more interviews in the future in podcast so that is the plan i can interview robin and some other researchers in the next couple of months so that's the plan um my setup i mean do i have my camera to be honest i don't know what the, the it's like a canon dslr uh camera uh, as far as I know, I actually have a friend who owns a film and photography studio. So he uh, helped me choose a camera. He helped me choose my lighting uh, setup. And um, yeah, mainly that I have a Canon DSLR camera. It was like a $600 camera, like not too crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to upgrade the audio right now. I want to get a shotgun mic because my audio is not ideal for the channel at, um, at the moment. Um, so that's the one thing I need to upgrade. Um, but apart just, from that, yeah, that's a basic setup. Nice. And for anyone listening, a shotgun mic is not a weapon. It is a kind of microphone that is like a stick that points at things and you can aim it so you can have it far away and it will capture things from a distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Um, all in all, how much did you pay for your setup just to get a ballpark for anyone who's maybe interested after seeing your videos and being like, damn, that looks good. All right. Including everything about a 1000 to $1,200. Yeah, yeah, cool. That's what I, I would think as well. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, which is amazing. Like, I think there was a time in my life where I really wanted to get into photography before I mm-hmm. was a professional photographer. And I was like, oh my God, the cheapest camera I can get at the time was like $600 or whatever. I'm like, whoa, that's way too much money for a hobby for like. Mm-hmm. And it's so looking at the YouTube channel and psychedelic scientists and all these things. And it sounds like immediately, like within months of starting it, you were paid literally for creating that content. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure that investment like has already, if not already recouped itself, like it's a case of like the longer you get from that initial point of investment, it's going to make more and more money for sure. As and well for me- as like life. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Like uh, for me, it was also if I buy this equipment, I'm not backing out from doing this channel, right? It's like I just drop, like for myself, it was like, oh, I just paid like a grand on this equipment. Then there's no going back at that point. I'm making this channel, you know. Um, so this that was part of it too, to to prevent any form of delaying um, or or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. as much as possible, I try and buy my stuff used. Um, I find that that's a great way of getting cameras at reduced price, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm also just thinking that uh, for somebody they, <laughs> who did want to way out of it, which maybe you shouldn't keep that, but um, they could buy, go into Best Buy or whatever and buy the whole setup and then have 30 days to like make the YouTube <laughs> account. And then if it doesn't work, they can go and return it all. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, getting into the last stages here. I'm curious to hear a bit more about, um, uh, just some like rapid fire questions, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've mentioned, a, I think I've heard you recommend at least five times in this conversation that uh, people go out and read. And it sounds like you're pretty well read yourself. Mm. Um, 
I'm wondering if you could just tell me like three of your favorite uh, all-time books. Mm, three of my favorite all-time books. Let's say three of the books that have been most influential in your life. Okay, three books. Hmm. One, um, yeah. One, honestly, it could be The Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow, which is like a very, it's a classic in the, you know, I already said that. So it's like a really good book in Zen Buddhism. Um, another one that affected me a lot. Yeah, interesting enough. Hmm. I want to say LSD Doorway to the Numinous by Stan Groff, which is a great, you know, erudite, comprehensive discussion of the LSD experience. Um, again, based on 4,000 sessions with a meticulous psychiatrist. Um, like 4,000 is a lot of sessions. <laughs> and uh, so that book, definitely. Um, and like one of the major influences on my life and my, li- and my approach to, this is just my academic orientation, was Aldous Huxley. And um, I'm trying to think of a specific book of his that catalyzed this. But um, I went through a period where I read like four of his novels back to back. Um, uh, I read um, his first book, Chrome Yellow, his book, Point Counterpoint, um, his book, uh, Island, and also Brave New World. And um, so those are four novels by him. And um, what influenced me through him was his extreme, like he was erudite times a thousand. He just knew everything about every, everything. He was commissioned um, to be the editor for the Encyclopedia Britannica just because he just knew everything, you know, wow. somehow. I d- did not know that. That's crazy. Yeah, back in the day, yeah. And um, his novels are a way of articulating his ideas through, the, through characters, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just super inspired by him. And I think he has a great, there's a great collection of essays by him on psychedelics called Moksha. Um, so Moksha was a good influence on me as well during that period, the formative period when I was around 18, 19. Um, so I'd recommend people to look into Aldous Huxley. So if you're going to read stuff by him, Brave New World, Island, Moksha, and um, uh, Doors of Perception. Yeah. So cool. Those. And um, in terms of psychedelic researchers or just researchers in general that you uh, really admire or aspire to emulate in some way, uh, wondering if you could name just a couple more. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, hmm. Nobody in particular comes to mind. Like, I've been thinking about this lately of wanting a mentor or some researcher that I'm aspiring to be like. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I haven't been able to hone in on a person yet. So I do admire the work Robin does. Um, but uh, I also admire, you know, the counterpoints from multiple other researchers. But I can't think of, I don't have a specific person that I'm inspiring to be like in the research world which is interesting. Okay. And this relates to a pattern I've had in my life of, of um, never really having that and just carving my own way. Like mm-hmm. I've never been somebody oriented towards an external figure and trying to be like that. So that's a whole other sure. story. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely can resonate with that as well. And I, I much prefer this notion of being embodied in the present and simply attending to what is. Um, 
and I just say for myself that there are folks out there um, like Roland Griffiths comes to mind for myself as somebody who just the level of integrity and um, clarity that he brings to uh, his research is just something I really admire. Mm-hmm. Totally. Nice. Um, yeah, I guess just before we end off is just any sort of general advice um, that you could give uh, folks who are, uh, you already spoke to people who maybe are trying to pursue this, a specific uh, kind of education or research career. Um, but just if you had a moment to speak to uh, every like grade 12 student who's out there today and give them something to take away and be a better person. Uh, what mm. might you say? Right. I would say, um, hmm. Have something you're working towards. I think it's easy to slip into a day-to-day routine where you're doing stuff each day, but there's nothing growing and there's nothing progressing from day-to-day. So this thing that you're working towards could be, um, you know, it could be going to the gym. It could be learning about uh, learning how to code. It could be getting good at guitar. It could be anything. But I think the most important skill to develop is this generalized this ability to have a goal that day to day that you work on improving in. And then as you as you get older and you have more clarity on what you want to do in life, you will have this kind of blueprint for what it means to grow and develop in something. So that's what I'd say. Wise words. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah, thank you so much, Manesh, uh, for joining me on the podcast and I look forward to the next time we connect. And uh, yeah, maybe to the audience, just leaving you with the idea of being not afraid of moving slowly, but instead uh, fearing standing still. Mm, Totally. I love it. Thanks, Blank. I had a great time talking with you. Thanks again. Cheers, man.